Hey everybody, I'm Sean. And I'm Eric. And we're the Vertiguys, checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Today we're going to talk about a little Preacher spinoff. This is Preacher Special, Saint of Killers, number one through four. Yeah, that's right. Saint of Killers, like Preacher, was written by Garth Ennis, but he does not have Steve Dillon along for the ride this time. Nope. Art by Steve Pugh and colors by Pamela Rambo. Do you know something about Steve Pugh? So, I mainly know Steve Pugh from... He wrote the Flintstones comic book that came out, uh, I think it was last year. Oh, okay. It was sort of like Flintstones in a slightly more serious way. It had a lot of, like, sharp... Social satire. Oh, interesting. I okay. didn't I didn't actually read it, but that's the reputation that it has. That's certainly a really interesting artistic project to have to take on, obviously. Yeah, but it's a comic book, you know, critically acclaimed. It's all done. You know, it's, it's not an ongoing series uh, if people wanted to jump on board. But it was part of a, a big thing that DC was doing of launching comic books based on Hanna-Barbera properties. Is this the same thing that led to the... Looney Tunes tie-ins? Well, the Looney Tunes tie-ins are a little different, but there were Hanna-Barbera tie-ins as well, okay. if, you, if you remember. Including, I think most bizarrely, Suicide Squad Banana Splits. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wait, is this, the, um, is this the one that was Batman Top Cat? Batman Top Cat was a B story that appeared in a different one-shot. But yeah, it's all part of the same thing. The same, like, movement of DC into Hanna-Barbera properties. Okay, that took place okay. Recently. So that's what I know Steve Pugh from. All right. Um, it's also worth noting that Steve Pugh didn't do the art for all four issues of Saint of Killers. Well, that's right. Steve Pugh did one, two, and four. Number three is Pencils by Carlos Ezcara. That's right. And sadly, I think Ezcara's art is a little bit better than Pugh's. <laughs> but yeah. we can cross that bridge when we come to it. All right. The covers, however, are by Glenn Fabry, everybody's favorite hyper-realist. Now, the cover of the first issue is sort of a classic Western cover. We've got the Saint of Killers scowling at the top, while below him there's a gang riding out of the sun. Yeah, that's right. And the Saint of Killers on this cover seems to be holding a revolver in one hand and a longer gun in the other. All right, now, before we launch into the plot summary, this is four issues. It's more than we usually cover, but the good news is not very much happens in them. Yeah, so we might be going a little faster than usual. Yeah, the storytelling here is a little bit decompressed. Right. Now, we're going to have to call this guy by a name of some kind. I think in my notes I'm just calling him the Saint, but he's of course not the Saint until the very end of the comic. Yeah, until he became the Saint, I referred to him as him in my notes. <laughs> but... Okay. He's occasionally referred to as the Texan or the Stranger by other characters. We may slip up and call him the Saint a lot. Anyway. Yeah, but we open on Joe. So this is a frame story. Yeah. We only see Joe and the young killer for, I think, one page at the beginning of the first issue and one page at the end of the last issue. Yeah. When I first read this, I was pretty sure this guy was Frankie the Eunuch. And rereading it, I was surprised to discover no evidence that that was the case. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I never caught that. Anyway, so Joe runs a pizzeria, but you can infer he's a former killer himself. Yeah. And he has met this young man on multiple occasions, known him for about a year, and decides it's time for him to hear the story of the Saint of Killers. Yeah, the narration here talks about how he has a son in law school, which 
he's glad, but it means that there's a widening gulf between them, so he hangs out with this young killer instead. I thought that was an interesting bit of characterization on two characters who don't really matter. Yeah, one thing I didn't like is the young killer uses uh, the N-word sure. here yeah. on the first page, which made me not like him very much <laughs> as a person <laughs> to start with. But I was also just unhappy with the fact that the N-word is used a couple of times throughout this story. Okay. And certainly that's accurate to racial attitudes of the post-Civil War era. Yeah. But I just, it felt particularly obnoxious how much it gets used because there are no black people who are major characters in this story. True. Black people are barely even seen throughout this story. And yet, <laughs> they're working in the N-word. So since this story didn't want, like, anything to do with black characters having anything to say about the black experience, you felt like it was gratuitously vulgar to use well, that word. Right. Racism is not at issue. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> in this comic book series. So the use of the word is gratuitous. All right. So he begins his story, and that brings us to a double-page splash. The Old West, a different time. And for stories, it was the greatest time of all. The narrator then proceeds to list several Old West legends, some of whom never existed. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think all of them are main characters from movies, but some of them are only main characters from movies and never existed in the actual Old West. Right, J.B. Books, the shootist, William Money from Unforgiven are yeah. listed here. Ethan Edwards, I think he's from The Searchers? That's John Wayne's character? Oh, yeah, I think you might be right. Ending with... It's been so long since then that I no longer know just which of them are the truth, and which are only legends. So that's an interesting stage setting. This is taking place in the Old West, but not the Old West as it was. Instead, the Old West of legend. Yeah, that's right. And it, it also makes clear that this is a story. It's not necessarily we're to understand exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. So we find the man who would become the Saint of Killers back when he was just a man. There was yet some good in his heart, and that was the tragedy. Yeah, it also mentions that within his eyes were embers of what had once been an inferno. Now, this man is a killer, a prolific killer. He's less of one now, but that side of him can still awaken. Yeah, that's right. We're finding him at a time when he has not been living a life of violence, but only temporarily. We also learn that he fought for the South in the Civil War. 20 miles east, we find... A dozen worthless sons of bitches, and whoever sent the storm that turned them from their course. Surely the hand that caused such woeful misdirection was not God's. Yeah, that's right. This band of a dozen scoundrels would never have crossed paths with the saint, if not for this fact that they were blown around by this blizzard and ended up, you know, headed in a completely different direction. Now, the two leaders of this gang are Gumbo McCready and the Preacher. Gumbo is a whiny young man with an incredibly ugly face who is pretty much always complaining or insulting somebody, and he has a sharp temper. The preacher is maybe a little older and wiser, if not by any stretch a good person. Yeah, he does not much resemble Jesse Custer, although it obviously seems to have some significance that this is a spinoff of Preacher, and one of the main characters is called the Preacher. Yeah, that's right, and he wears a collar all the time, although he's... If he ever was a preacher, he's certainly not an active one. Right. Now, the two of these guys, Gumbo and the preacher, they have a plan that they are going to go down to Mexico 
and slaughter Mexicans as a way of gathering Apache scalps without taking any risk by meeting actual Apaches. Right. Now that is basically the plot of the novel Blood Meridian. Oh, okay. Also, okay. if you've ever read that. That's Cormac McCarthy, right? Yeah. So that's the triggering event for a lot of the chaos and darkness that takes place in that novel. And, you know, it's also the triggering event for a lot of chaos and darkness here. So one wonders if that novel was on Garth Ennis's mind. Yeah, or Joe's for that matter. Joe the pizzeria guy. Could yeah. be. The saint stops for coffee with a caravan. He turns down an offer to ride with them. He tells them he's got a wife and child with the fever, and he's riding to get medicine and get it home for them. They tell him there's a doctor in Ratwater, but it's not a friendly place. We are told that the Picos was all iced over. That places this story in either southern Texas or northern Mexico, right? Yeah, that's the, right. The I Picos think, River? I think there's a line in the fourth issue where they mention that he's heading back to Texas to deal with, with his enemies. So Okay. The man who would be the saint, the stranger, arrives in Ratwater, but the doctor is too drunk to stand, so he'll have to spend the night. Yeah, and he passes by the saloon and finds a boarding house instead, because he's not the man that he used to be. Right. And he is not the only arrival that night. MacReady's gang rides in out of the storm. The man is up all night, thinking about the situation that his wife and daughter are in, in desperate need of medicine, and he thinks about the promise that he made to them, that he'll be home in six days at most. He slept badly, we are told. If you don't get back in time, you have to remember, it's not your fault, husband. It's the fevers. In the morning, he is trying to hurry the doctor along. The doctor warns him that the blizzard will be back today so he can't ride out, and he plans to ride through it regardless. Yeah, back across the Llano, which I think is just the plains. Right. While he waits, he decides to go someplace he can buy a newspaper. That turns out to be the tavern, Coolies. And so it was that when the villains entered Coolies, he was already there. Now, the preacher and Gumbo provoke a young member of their gang, who looks like a Final Fantasy character. He is amazingly dressed. He's got this oversized plaid vest and stuff tied into his hair. I think we are meant to infer here that he's a native or half-native. Right, yeah, part, part Indian was my thought. Wild hair, gun belts. He looks cool, actually. Yeah, <laughs> he looks really cool. He doesn't turn out to be that cool. They provoke him into going over to confront the man. What's your name, mister? I asked you a question, old man. I don't recall seeing you before. I want to know what you're... Walk away, boy. What? Why, you damn old son of a bitch, you think you can tell me to... And then there's a really interesting exchange that happens just with looks. The young gunslinger sees the man's eye and is terrified, but he looks back, can't go back to the preacher and gumbo and empty-handed. So he reaches for his gun. To hell with you. He says, almost in a whisper, and goes for his own gun. But what we saw from the beginning of this scene is that the stranger has his Walker Colt hidden in his newspaper. So he's quick around the draw. Yeah, he draws and fires instantly, killing the young gunslinger. Every time there's violence in this comic, blood doesn't just spray from wounds, but it fills the air in this kind of crazy jigsaw puzzle of blood filling every available space. Yeah, I called it like a, an electric mist yeah. of blood that goes everywhere. 
The preacher witnessing this act uh, mutters to himself, Gettysburg. Yeah, he has a flashback recalling that he met this man at Gettysburg when they were fighting on opposite sides and fought like a demon. So every man in the bar swears up and down that it's self-defense, which I think technically it is. Yeah, and McCready and the preacher swear that the young fool wasn't traveling with them. I'm sorry, they do admit he was traveling with them, but they say they didn't really know him. So they exempt themselves from any possible legal ramifications. Now, I think this part is interesting. The preacher introduces himself to the stranger and says, They call me the preacher. And he immediately cuts him off and replies, It's plain to see you ain't one. Right. He goes on to say that he suffered a loss of faith during the war between the states and yeah, the stranger is clearly not impressed that they are impressed that he killed a man. I won't be scorned or trifled with, not ever. But I'd have scared him off if you'd not shamed him into reaching for his pistol. We should also note here that Gumbo McCready introduces himself, so the stranger knows his name. Uh, they invite him to ride with them, but he just walks away, which McCready hates. Yeah, a little bit before that, there's another exchange that I like. Gumbo says... I've killed 30-odd men in my time. Had to, just like you did. Only thing that sets us apart is harder men, ain't it? The Texan comes back to that later, saying, You have it wrong, McCready. Killing's nothing but a sin against your fellow man, letting your baser side control you, and only facing afterward what you've done to blood and flesh. If killing set apart a hard man, every son of a bitch in Texas would be one. That's kind of a good line. Yeah, I quite liked it. Against advice, the stranger rides off into the storm. The next day, he finds the settler's caravan in ruins. Yeah, they have been massacred and scalped. Yeah, and we find McCready among the ruins brandishing a scalp and shouting, for convenient taxonomy, I'm a killer! The stranger ambushes and massacres McCready's crew. Yeah, note here that uh, McCready says that he's as much a killer as any cold-eyed Texan bastard, sort of explicitly committing these crimes to restore his bravado after having been having yeah. been shown up in his manliness by the stranger. I also like how the preacher responds, sort of unimpressed, You sure are, Gumbo. Yeah, so the stranger kills a bunch of them, although McCready and the preacher get away, and as they get a horse and ride, they shoot every other horse in the vicinity, including the stranger's horse. Right, so that he can't take off after them. I think he actually kills every member of the gang except for the preacher and McCready. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's confirmed in the next issue. Okay. Yeah. So, without a horse, the Texan doesn't arrive back to his wife and daughter until two weeks have passed. He had the original plan was six days, and of course he is much too late. It took him nearly two weeks, not the one he'd thought. He should have died a dozen times over, and yet he would not quit. He made it home with the medicine. We get one look at the inside of his home. Crows standing on a headboard, feeding. And ever on his lips was the name of the man who had delayed him. McCready. All right, which brings us straight to Saint of Killers number two. Same credits, cover, features the saint fighting the gang in a bar... He's taking on a whole room full of guys with a sword and a saber. Sword and a saber? Those are the same thing. <laughs> a sword and a pistol. A walker colt and a saber. Yeah, a U.S. cavalry saber, it looks like. It's interesting to me, this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but of the four issues of Saint of Killers, three of them have the saint on the cover. 
and he is using a different duo of weapons hmm. in each of those covers. The first issue, he has a long gun plus a Walker Colt. On the cover of the second issue, he has his cavalry saber and his Walker Colt. And on the cover of the fourth issue, he has his two magic Walker Colts. Right, so he doesn't use his iconic weapons until the cover of the fourth issue. That's right. Also visible on this cover is somebody with the same beard as the Preacher, but flaming blonde hair instead of the Preacher's gray. Okay. Oh, did you think that was meant to be the Preacher? Well, he doesn't have the collar, so maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it. I thought he was a cool-looking dude. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get you very far being a cool-looking dude in this comic. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> Leaving his former home, the stranger encounters a wolf pack. Twice as many beasts as he had bullets in his guns, and yet they let him pass. The narrator speculates, was it the smell of grave dirt, fear, kinship? But more than likely not, for he was kin to none. I also liked here, well, it describes him leaving the place that used to be his home. That's right. With his wife and daughter dead, that place is no home to him any longer. Yeah. Then we launch into a flashback that will carry us most of the rest of this issue. Ten years earlier... The stranger was basically working as an Indian fighter, a bounty hunter hunting Kiowa. Right. Uh, and he found a kidnapped girl who had been taken off of a stagecoach during an Indian attack. Yeah. Yeah. They stopped here last night for, for another of their goddamn parties, is the way she describes it. Right. The, uh, I don't want to say implication, because I think it's more than just implied. Yeah. But we are basically told that she was raped repeatedly by her captors. Yeah. Now, she argues that he's a decent man because he rescued her, but he replies, I didn't know you were there. As to decency, I crept up and shot them in the back when they were too damn drunk to fight. That was a little bit hair star. Oh, yeah, it got raspy. I was afraid I was doing Logan by accident. <laughs> <laughs> he offers to let her come with him. Night on the trail, she's holding forth on how evil the Kiowa were, but he disagrees. They learned a lot of it from us. What? In our hearts, we're as savage as they are. Indians and whites ain't but two tribes of butchers fighting over a stretch of dirt. What'll decide it in the end is who's meanest. Now, he gets her back to her brother in town, and he is shocked and horrified to see who she's riding with. You're lucky he didn't kill you. That man is as bad as Satan himself. He's killed just about every living thing he's run across. He was at Manassas, Antietam, Gettysburg. And that was where he got a taste for it, in the war. He came back west to be a manhunter, and he always gets who he goes after. And in between, he drinks, and then you'd better look out. He's shot men in taverns just for looking at him wrong. He'll throw down on anyone for any reason suits him. He didn't kill me. Hasn't anyone spoken to him? Asked him why he follows this murderous path? God Almighty, who would dare? Now, she knows that it's forward, but she has no interest in staying with this brother, and... Asks to go with the stranger. There is good in you, she tells him. I know it. That might be from Star Wars. <laughs> but in any case... <laughs> yeah, he tries to stop her. He says that her brother is right. You want to see men die every day of your life? But she says that there's more to him than just a killer. And she sees in him a chance for her to do some real good. For her beliefs in God and decency to have meaning. You're mistaken, ma'am. Killing's all I know. There's nothing more to me than that. She says... We'll see. And much to his amazement, he went with her, for not one soul had ever placed one ounce of faith in him before. 
It unfolded before his eyes like a fiction he could not believe he was part of. They built a home high in the mountains, both preferring solitude to raucous town life. And all he shot were beasts and birds for food to eat and fur to trade. And as she gives birth to their child, she says, There, husband, you see, there's more to you than killing after all. We fast forward to when their daughter is eight. His wife asks him to read to their daughter from the Bible. He refuses, and he doesn't think God's love has anything to do with his change of heart. I don't know as it had anything to do with the change in me. That was your doing, I reckon, more than any other. If you want to teach her scripture, you know I have no objection. But it's not for me. I never saw God's love once, not in the things I've witnessed. Why can't a man turn to doing good without the Lord getting all mixed up in it? And then comes the fever, the ride to Ratwater, and the fatal delay. Briefly recapped in this issue, it says, And then came the fever, and the page where we see him burying his wife and daughter is entirely against a black background. It's very powerful. Which brings us to the stranger riding after the gang. All he had left was a dull and aching vengeance for a world destroyed, a world he now suspected he had never had a right to. His lot was blood and slaughter, nothing more, and those ten years he fooled himself were crawling like a demon in his gut. Now, in the meantime, we learn that McCready has taken over Ratwater. Yeah, the cowardly sheriff of Ratwater who we barely encountered in the last issue when he crawled out of his bottle just long enough to take testimony that the shooting of the young man was self-defense. He handed over his badge to McCready, and McCready shot him anyway. This guy says he just had to get out of town, despite the blizzard, which is still going on. Right, this is a stranger that a stranger that the stranger has run into along the road. Yeah, who's, who's telling him about the developments in Ratwater. And the stranger says, be thankful you did. Did as in got out of town. Yeah. So we see McCready, he's holding court in coolies. He's left a dead man out for decoration. To show people what happens when you spill whiskey on his shoes. He's wearing a sheriff's star on his chest. He has a cigarette between his fingers and a number 12 carved into his shoe. Do you think he's one of them soldier guys? Yeah, I, I think that he is probably a part of the Genova reunion. Yeah. The preacher is not having so much fun. In fact, he's dead bored. All I want from life is drink and fornication. But the hand I've been dealt is so wretched, it seems like even that's too much to ask. If there is a god, he must have wiped his ass on Texas, and Ratwater's just the shit stain left behind. Yeah, that reminds me of the line that I think Jesse had way back in All in the Family, right? If the devil created Texas, Angelville is where he rested on the seventh day. Yeah, that's a great line. The preacher also expresses that he doesn't have a ton of faith in Gumbo or their chances of getting a good gang together. That's right. Gumbo has a, an entertainment in mind, which is as soon as the blizzard clears to go right out and kill the Texan. But the preacher tells him basically, you know, our first bunch of guys were worthless and this is what we could get after we lost the first bunch of guys. <laughs> right. Suddenly there is a gunshot and the preacher recognizes it instantly as a walker cult, a stranger's gun. McCready, I'm here to kill you, you son of a bitch. You and that drunken preacher both. Any man stands with you or otherwise gets in my way, it makes no odds to me. I'll send you all to hell. The next several pages are a great big fight scene. The stranger rides his horse right into the bar, cutting down men left and right with his cavalry saber. They fire, but no one can hit him. Yeah, he goes through the entire gang. This is really great action on these few pages here. 
Yeah, the blood spray and the debris in the air form the same flying backdrop effect. The preacher books it while the saint chops off MacReady's hand. Desperate to survive, MacReady grabs a young prostitute, puts a knife to her throat, and threatens to kill her unless the Texan turns and walks away. And the stranger shoots her right between the eyes. And he damned himself, utterly and for all time. No matter what was to come or what choices he made, that was the moment he spilled innocent blood. That was the moment he damned his soul. So that's interesting. That tells us that he actually has never killed an innocent before. Well, yeah, or at least that's the way the story is being told. Given his time as an Indian fighter, so to speak, it's kind of hard to believe that, but that's the way that we're reading the story. Well, yeah, I mean, if he only killed Indians that were, you know, marauding about the countryside in in bands, then it may be possible. Yeah, I mean, we've been given to understand that the Kiowa he killed when he met his wife were not innocent. Right. It's sort of a bias that's being carried in the story being told. But we are to understand that this is the first time he's killed an innocent. It doesn't do him any good. As he closes in on McCready, his pistol is empty. We hear a click, and then he takes a shovel to the side of the head. Right, Preacher clocks him with a shovel. McCready takes the shovel, yells for the stranger to go to hell, and drives it down into his chest. His last thought was a prayer, a plea to any who would grant it, that he might live one minute longer, just long enough for two more murders, for these villains whose lives were a cancer in his heart and he needed so badly to kill. But who could have heard such a prayer from such a man as him? There was no Saint of Killers then. Saint of Killers, Issue 3. Written by Garth Ennis. Art by Carlos Ezquira. On the cover, we have the devil, as seen through the space between a holstered gun and a hand. Yeah, that is a beautiful cover. Uh, I mean, the devil is one ugly son of a bitch. But, <laughs> but the, yeah, the but layout it's a of, composition. Yeah, the composition, the layout of it is really good. That's by Glenn Fabry, of course. Now, we find the stranger on his way into hell, leading behind him a massive throng of all the people he ever killed. Or all the sinners, at least. Right, yeah. But he's only ever killed one innocent, right? So Yeah, that's right. Oh, and, and, the, uh, and the prostitute's an innocent. It didn't even occur to me until now to think that, according to the cosmology put forth in this story, being a prostitute's not a sin. Yeah. That seems to be true. Now, there was something about this that made me say that it was probably not the way that hell works in Preacher, but the way that hell is depicted as part of this story and not so much the way that it would normally appear in the Preacher cosmology. I don't know that we ever see the hell of Preacher. Yeah, other than right now. Well, all of the men that he's killed, their minds are gone, but, we are told, his hate remained intact. And we see their blank, empty eyes, and his still squinting in rage. This brings us to the Gates of Hell. Now, we talked about what the Gates of Hell looked like in Sandman when we've been there before. And we've also seen Hell in Hellblazer. This is sort of a unique artistic take. Yeah. It's, it's always full of faces and fire, and the gates are in the shape of skulls and teeth. Yeah, the gate is this massive mouth-shaped gate. There's a bright flame visible behind it. And the gate is absolutely festooned with giant humanoid skulls. Uh, it's, it's very different from Sandman's Hell. You know, that's kind of a blasted landscape peopled by all these weird demons. 
more a place for demons than anything else. This, I think, is more traditional, and I think it emphasizes the fear of death more than the the home for demons, the cosmological aspect of it. Right. Not far away, the devil was losing at poker to the angel of death. The angel is talking to him about the next century, about what mortals will come up with for killing each other. He says, I'm serious. I've seen the plans. This sort of suggests a very hands-on god. Right, which is not far off base, as we'll find out. Oh, I like to hear that the angel of death suggests they play for souls, and the devil's reply is, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. Should we talk for a, a second here about the character design of the angel of death? That's a good idea. He's powerfully built, but not without grace. He has black eyes with a very somber expression. Yeah, he has gray skin all over, flowing curly black hair, and his eyes are completely dark. The devil is a pretty traditional design, I guess, except for the fact that he's chomping a stogie. Yeah, yeah, he's a big red guy with horns. Yeah, and I believe that we will see that he has the hooves. Yes, that's right, we do. The angel's not happy about what he sees coming in the next century, which the devil doesn't really understand. Whether mortals go to heaven or hell, the angel of death is employed, right? Right, and he reveals that he wasn't always the angel of death, and maybe it would be easier for him if he always had been. When there were only angels, there was no need for a deathbringer. And then one day it's bang, sentient life on earth, free will, you're all getting jobs, and you at the back, yes you, you can be the angel of death. And at the same time, the angel of death never understood the point of mortal life, the point of free will. Recalling millennia of warfare, he says, you end up wondering what's the reason behind it all. What could he have been thinking? Now we go back to the stranger who has arrived at hell proper. Demons swoop down and carry off all of his entourage of sinners, but one look at his eyes and they back off. Right, only the dead will meet his gaze. He rides on, watched by everyone that he has sent to hell, and he thinks, did I really kill so many? And the narration tells us, and maybe his greatest sin had been that, to regard a man's death so lightly. He saw horrors beyond words and sinners beyond number, though one or two he recognized, men of his regiment he thought had died with honor, women he had judged of virtue, even a worthy enemy or two, yet all were there. At the card table, the devil can't concentrate. Now that you mention it, the angel of death says, it has gotten a bit cold all of a sudden. But how can it be cold in hell? And we see there's sort of a, a tower, a bit of a skyscraper, yeah, running up the center of hell. And Tartarus, I guess. That's where the devil hangs out, and he looks out to see a frozen landscape. Hell has frozen over. The fires are out! The fucking fires are out! What am I gonna do? And he was angry, but then he pondered just what that could mean. And for a moment, he was scared. So he goes out looking for the source of the coal. He finds in this hell no invention, no cruelty, just a primal force, a hurricane of hate. The devil had never imagined the hell as bad as this. Right, hell has been perverted beyond how bad damnation is supposed to be. Which tells you something. He finds the stranger standing there in a snowdrift. And who might you be? I, I love the, the devil's, like, surprised mug. <laughs> the devil's shocked face as this guy is totally nonchalant about him. <laughs> yeah. And then he just backhands him. But the devil tries to rip the saint's heart out, and his fingers freeze on contact. How can a mortal heart be so cold? I don't know. All I can feel is hate. But that's what's doing it, you fool. That hate has frozen hell. 
I don't give a good long fuck who you hate or why you hate them, but you have got to stop. I can't. So the devil tries to whip the hate out of him. Yeah, he hangs him up and whips him until his back is gone, his spine is exposed. Gross, but effective. <laughs> yeah. Well, I say it's effective in the context of this comic book. It is not effective for the devil. Why? Why can't you stop hating? Mind telling me how? How the fuck would I know? The angel of death shows up. I can't drive the hatred from this bastard's heart any more than I could climb to sit on heaven's throne. It's all over. I'm beaten. The devil cannot quit on his domain. And Sandman somewhere is saying, Yeah, dude! <laughs> and upon hearing that all this man wants is to kill, the angel's eyes light up. So the angel asks the stranger why he alone retained his mind, his malevolence. I had something taken from me, only good in a bad life. And when it was gone, all that was left was to fall back on the bad. I died with work still needed doing. In exchange for the chance to go take his revenge, the angel wants the saint to take his job, become the Deathbringer. He would be the patron saint of slaughter and assassination. He would kill for the Lord and in his name, and none but he would have the power to command you. Will you do it? Reckon I will. It's time for a switcheroo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and over first a black panel and then a full-page splash of the... Stranger standing there looking pissed in hell. They cut him down and stood him tall and yelled with joy when what they should have done was wept for the world and for the future. Yeah, and in the splash panel of him standing there looking pissed off, he's stripped bare uh, from the waist up, but his shadow is clad in the trench coat and holding two pistols. Oh, nice. I didn't know the Saint of Killers was Darth Vader. Oh, God. <laughs> This one actually had it first. This yeah, this, a, this a 1987 issue. Right. So it predates it not by very much, actually. Interesting. Saint of Killers number four. Steve Pugh is back, and the Glenn Fabry cover shows the Saint up close firing twin guns into the camera. The Saint of Killers is about to shoot you. Note that this contradicts points given later in the comic, since those who have looked at the cover have not died. Hmm. So the Angel of Death has his sword melted down in a previously unmentioned still-burning hellfire. Deus Ex Machina. And forges the sword into two walker cults. Yeah. These guns would not miss fire, nor would their hammers fall on empty chambers. No shot they fired would miss its mark. No wound they gave would be anything but fatal. The devil sews the saint back together, but his work is rushed and there will always be scars. It's also mentioned a little bit earlier on in the previous issue that uh, as the Saint of Killers, no one will be able to command him but God. Yeah. The Angel of Death tells him, or the unemployed angel tells him, Once your business back in Texas is concluded, you will go to Boot Hill, where a place has been prepared for you. You will sleep beneath the earth, but your shade will walk its surface. You will gather the souls of the dead wherever men die by violent means. But a time might come when the Lord God will send a messenger to wake you that you yourself can go abroad and kill as he commands. You are the saint of killers now. Do you understand? I reckon so. Okay, so do you suppose that the shade of the saint of killers gathered Tulip's soul when she died? By violence? She didn't see him, but maybe that's because she was dead. I don't know. Or maybe because he was walking the earth, he wasn't doing that job at the time? Not sure how it works. Yeah, or maybe whatever would have happened didn't happen because God intervened. Yeah. Note that Steve Pugh has given the devil a beard. 
where he didn't have one in the Azkara art. Oh yeah, Azkara gives him this big stubbly chin. It's a cuter design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that Azkara's art, especially his take on Hell, is better than what we see in the in the Steve Pugh issues. As the saint leaves, the fires of Hell erupt forth burning once again. The devil shouts, Good riddance, you cold-hearted son of a bitch. Yeah, a final insult that was ill-advised. Yeah, the saint just turns right around and shoots him. Shoots him dead. Are you out of your fucking mind? Can you even begin to conceive of what this means? You can't do that. You can't kill the devil. We get a narrow panel of the saint's eye as he draws back the hammer on his colt. Please forgive me, O oh saint of killers. I should have held my tongue. I know you can do anything you want. And he turns and walks out of hell. Yeah, and the angel of death, or former angel of death, weeps over the body of the devil. Perhaps because this means he has to become the devil now? I don't know. Or maybe they were just friends. Could be. Or maybe he just realized how powerful and uncontrollable the saint really is. There's a lot of things going on. Ratwater, it's Christmas. The blizzard is still going on. We are told that MacReady's wound, his missing hand, has been patched up not well, and he's slowly dying as he has killed a man a day. Yeah, he's killed a man a day since he arrived, but the storm is still going on, so no one leaves. And we see that he keeps the stranger's corpse on display in coolies as he pisses blood on his face. Buy you a drink? The preacher walks out in disgust. He slips on the snow and finds a whiskey bottle under his hand. But it's empty. Broken in half, in fact. I think, actually, no, he doesn't find it. He has Oh, that's his bottle. bottle. Okay. He has the whiskey bottle, and when he slips and falls, he loses it, picks it back up, thinking it's whole, and sees that the bottom is broken out of it. Thanks for shitting on me when I'm down, Lord. Keep this up, and I might begin to believe you really are there after all, you spiteful old bastard. He thinks he hears something. Yeah, he hears someone coming, and it's the Saint of Killers walking out of the blizzard. And the preacher's faith came back in a rush of piss. Uh, 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 our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our... The report was like nothing any other pistol could produce, a roaring mix of blast and ricochet that seemed to echo to eternity, a sound not heard before in all the world. Yet MacReady swore it was familiar. Yeah, so the saint guns down the preacher and heads into Coolies to take out MacReady, who hides. Yeah, MacReady has the good sense to hide. And there's a neat sequence of panels here as MacReady knows what's behind him out the door and stares straight ahead of him at the corpse of the stranger and is puzzled as to how this is happening. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now at this point, the saint begins to slaughter the townsfolk indiscriminately. Yeah, he's just gunning down women and children. The men of the town try to stop him with guns and axes to no effect. There's about five full pages of massacre here, which I don't feel like recapping in a lot of detail. Yeah, it's important to note that people shoot him and he doesn't die. People hit him with an axe and it just breaks. Yeah, and that he's killing indiscriminately. In fact, we're told that he hunts down and kills every member of the town of Ratwater. The narration briefly considers that the town itself was a black hole of evil that uh, sucked in badness and spat out hate. That he had decided that the entire town was something that had to be destroyed. 
and rejects that explanation. He knew what he was doing on that dreadful bloody night. This was his vengeance and the beginning of his legend. Right. Because in the end, his ire ran far too deep. Two killings would not have been enough. Finally, he catches up to McCready, who at this point thinks he's a hallucination. And the saint just shoots him in the gut. <laughs> yeah, and uh, blows pieces of his spine apart. Yeah, that's pretty bloody. He gets it maybe marginally worse than other people, but we see a lot of horrific killings in the last several pages. McCready says, You're the devil himself! There ain't worse than me in all of hell. He levels his gun one more time. Go and look. After that, he goes to Boot Hill and rests. It says no one could have known of the awful thing he would one day do. I'm not sure if that's referring to events we have seen or have yet to see in Preacher, or just generalized awful things that he's going to do, killing I, a lot of people. I think it's referring to the end of Preacher. Okay, so that's something specific, uh, but we don't know what it is yet in the context of this series. Right. Okay. It's a bloody century, and... The narration picks up, and so much blood has flowed since then that I no longer know how much of it is true, and how much only nightmare. Mirroring the narration at the beginning of this entire story. Back in the present, the sun has gone down. They're now sitting in a lamp-lit park, and the young killer, he's no longer bright-eyed. His eyes are wide and haunted. Holy God, the kid had aged five years, a narration box tells us. Yeah, the old man asks him what he thinks of the story. I think that's one spooky motherfucking story. That's what I think. Jesus Christ, what the fuck do you have to go and tell me that for? He asks, Is he real, this fucking guy? <laughs> Pray to him, boy. When your finger tightens on the trigger, he'll be there. Alright, so that was Preacher Special, The Saint of Killers. Yeah, and I think I largely agreed with the kid. Uh, that is a spooky motherfucking story. You know, it's good in a certain way, but it's also like, I remember the first time I read it, finishing reading it and thinking, why did you just tell me that story? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's nihilistic and mean-spirited. Yeah, it's dark and bloody and pessimistic. Yeah, it's a, it's a messed up story. And I think that's intentional. And, and I think in a way, I mean, it sets up the saint as a villain, which is what it's aiming to do. But to me, it also sort of sets up that the saint needs to be defeated in some way, or his brand of nihilistic bullshit has won. <laughs> yeah, and the circumstances of how he became the saint are important to the future of the series. Right. Okay. So, in the, f the first episode that we talked about Preacher of this podcast. Yeah. I said that basically the first issue of Preacher is what's covered in the first season of the Preacher TV show. Yeah. And that's somewhat true, but there's also some other things uh, sprinkled throughout the first season that weren't covered in the first issue, and this is one of them. One of those is an adaptation of this story. Right. Featuring Graham McTavish. Right, yeah. And he plays, uh, he plays the Saint of Killers in the show. Okay. So, there's not a lot of fun to be had in reading this story. Let's just say it like that. Yeah, that's... I mean, Preacher is often a pretty grim story. There's a lot of bad people and bad stuff happening in it. But it also has a great sense of humor. Yeah, and this has some extremely dark humor in it. Yeah. There are plenty of 
I don't know if jokes is the word, but yeah. but you know there are there are uh, rough chuckles <laughs> to yeah. be had, but yeah, and there are dark ironies. I suppose it's the narration never really lets up on reminding us what an awful story we're seeing. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a grim and haunting experience reading the Saint of Killers miniseries, but not a dark experience that is entirely without its beauties. Mm-hmm. I think part of what bugs me about this series is that McCready is a pretty weak villain. He's, you know, he's a petulant kid with a gun, and it's not particularly satisfying to see someone go against him. It's intensely frustrating to see someone go against him and lose repeatedly. Yeah, that's true. It's just bad fucking luck. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's hardly a villain that you can root for someone to kill, and the comic, I think, deliberately deprives us of a, a wish-fulfillment vengeance fantasy. When the saint gets his vengeance, it's so horrible that we can't enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's true. Like I mentioned before, uh, MacReady reminds me quite a bit of Blood Meridian. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't read that, I think it's worth looking at. Mm-hmm. Although, if you thought this was dark... <laughs> <laughs> if you think Garth Ennis is dark, doesn't hold a candle to Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Um, but yeah, the, the Saint of Killers had all sorts of bad luck thrown into his path. Yeah. And one of the things that we're going to see going forward into the Preacher series is... What was the cause of all that bad luck? Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, and so we already know from the Masada arc that why the saint's family died is something of a secret that's known in heaven, and Jesse is now aiming to find that out so that he can pay back the saint for his help with that information. That's right. Right. And, you know, and all of this is a, is a logical progression from the saint being introduced as the guy you can't kill. He's bulletproof, he can't be killed, and he can't fail to kill if he wants to. You always have to talk your way out with the saint. Yeah, that's true. He is a, an effective and scary and even somewhat nuanced, although it feels kind of silly to say it, <laughs> even a somewhat nuanced villain in his way. And this series does well at explaining why he is the way he is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's... Definitely a larger-than-life presence, and this story adds to that, too. The heart's so cold, it froze hell. <laughs> so cold and rattlesnake mean. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. He was described that way. Yeah. Um, and lots of great Garth Ennis dialogue in here as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we complained about the story being rather sparse, but there was a lot of a lot of good moment-to-moment writing in it. You know, as glad as I am also that Steve Dillon drew every issue of Preacher. Yeah. I think I'm equally glad that he didn't draw this. You like having a bit of a stylistic barrier between this and the core series? Yeah, and it's not even that I'm crazy about Steve Pugh, mm-hmm. but it's just seeing another artist's vision of this, having this be somewhat set apart, uh, I think is worthwhile. Yeah, and that distinguishes what we're seeing a bit as a story as opposed to the objective truth of the Preacher universe. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I would ask you what your favorite preacher side story is, but I think this is the first one we've done. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's Cassidy, Blood, and Wisdom. <laughs> in case you ever wondered again. <laughs> okay. And I think Cassidy, Blood, and Whiskey is our next preacher show. Yeah, that's right. But first, it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This. 
And this week, Sean is going to be reading Survivor's Club, number one, by Lauren Bukes and Dale Halverson, with art by Ryan Kelly and a cover by Bill Sienkiewicz. Did you ever watch The Nine? Man, that was a weird show. Tim Daly, Kim Rayburn. Musical? No. No? No. All right. Well, there's no need for me to waste your time explaining what it is when I can waste everybody's time by putting it in the show notes. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, so Sean just read Survivor's Club, issue the first. (laughs) Okay, so there's this woman is sending out this email to five strangers. These six strangers meet, except one of them doesn't show up, which means there are five strangers. She has discovered that those six are the only living people on a list she found on the internet, and that all of them have in common that something bad happened to them in 1987. Right. Something bad paranormal in most cases? Right. Yeah. The idea is that they all survived a horror movie. Yeah, I guess. That they're all the the, the final... I, I didn't put it together that way, but yeah, that makes sense. They're all the final girl. Right. They're all the final girl or guy from a... From a particular horror movie. Right. Now, in her case, she played a video game called Acheron. Which is Polybius. That's the Northwest U.S. legend of a uh, haunted video game that was made by the CIA to cause hallucinations. It's not clear whether the video game caused hallucinations or actual mystical nonsense, but badness happened and she burned down her neighborhood to try to stop it and killed a bunch of people, including her dad. Right. Her neighborhood, which happened to be in apartheid South Africa. That is true. Yeah, this is something strange. Did it say what the time frame of the comic was? Because all of these people looked too young to have been active in 1987 to me. That's a good point. They're all, like, fairly young, so this must be, like, 1997 or something. You know? A little later than that, because they're using the internet pretty regularly, and we see somebody send an email on a phone at one point, but... Oh. Well, maybe the timeline just doesn't make sense. But, yeah, they all look like people who were born in 1987 to me. Right. They all look like we were born in 1987. That's... It's true. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, playing with some, like, some urban legend creepypasta stuff, at least in the first issue, at least with Zira's story. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I don't think that you would necessarily get this from the first issue. It doesn't sound like you did. But the concept of the comic, at least as it's sold on the trade, is that they all survived classic 80s horror movies. Right. Yeah, so there was a haunted video game. One of them was bitten by a vampire. One of them was apparently present for an exorcism of some kind. So um, it seems, yeah. Yeah, and and then at the end of the issue, we get one final reveal, which is that Alice, the irritatingly perfect blonde, there are at least two Alices who take turns being Alice. Right. Which is, if I'm not mistaken, the ending to a Twilight Zone episode, where it was revealed that mannequins... There's a woman who sees a mannequin who looks like her, and she thinks it's creepy, and then she sees mannequins moving, and it turns out there are, like, six mannequins that take turns living that life. Oh, right. So, did you enjoy the concept of this issue, or...? Uh, kind of. I mean, I probably would have had more fun with it if I had realized what the hook of the series was supposed to be. At the time, it seemed to me, you know, a thriller based on internet conspiracy theories and urban legends, and that didn't hook me that much. I see. I think for me it was a thing where I enjoyed the concept more than the execution. Okay. But you didn't know the concept, so how did you like the execution? I thought it was okay. I thought it did a good job of setting up uh, several characters who have an interesting... But each of them has an interesting mystery about them, although it's not clear how much that's going to be revealed, because each of them has a traumatic experience 
that is just the fragment of a story. And then there's a central mystery of why are they all, you know, the final kids who made a list of them and, and is someone after them? Because there are these two creepy things that we see. One is the guy who's following them around singing the song and the other is the, the musician who murders a bunch of people. Right. Or hallucinates about murdering a bunch of people. That wasn't that clear to me. Right. So it, it seemed like Kiri, the Japanese one, yeah. was in, like, I assumed that that was some sort of, like, the ring type thing that they yeah, lived Yeah, she's seen with a, with a ghost girl at the end of the book. And there's something about, like, a, an exploded or disintegrated person on a bathroom wall hmm. when she was a little girl. I think that was her. Right. And then Tio, he didn't seem to want any part of it. That's right. So he's the, the requisite skeptic character, although he's the one that gets the most focus aside from Zero in the issue. Because right, exactly. he spends most of the rest of it running into weird stuff and being like, oh, there is weird stuff. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and you wonder how long this has been a part of his life that yeah. he's encountering all this craziness. What did you think of the art? I mean, I generally liked it. Functional character designs, reasonably distinct from each other. I thought they, they all looked memorable and distinct enough. Yeah, I agree the character designs were pretty good. The art was nice to look at, you know. The horror stuff was adequately scary. Yeah. But I did think that events were hard to follow sometimes, and the panel work was maybe a part of that. That's fair. I felt like the flashback sequence happened very, very fast. Zero's flashback to her neighborhood burning down. Oh, yeah, that's right. That I think that's one of the main things that I was thinking of. The other part is when... Uh, Tio has like a hallucination or an experience that he's being like attacked by bees or something. Yeah, yeah. While he's sort of looking for the guy who posted the YouTube video of himself playing the game, which shares some code with the haunted video game from Zero's past. Right. So there's there's mysteries on a lot of fronts here. <laughs> yeah. So do you think you'll be on board for issue two of Survivor's Club? I could read another issue. Of, I think the hook at the end that there are multiple Alices is by itself interesting enough to make me want to see where this is going. All right. You want to give a shout out? Yeah, people should totally still listen to What's Lightsaber's Precious. That's a new podcast that was just recently started by my friend Joanna and her husband Ryan. It's about Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, and it's a lot of fun. Also, you should listen to Blankcast, if you aren't already. Oh, thanks. In which Sean and our brother PK have conversations on myriad topics. <laughs> Talk about whatever we feel like. <laughs> right. Most, mostly, usually, kind of usually video games, but not that usually. <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah. not prohibitively usually. <laughs> I will say that I have not listened to... What's Lightsaber's Precious yet, but you told me what the concept of it was, and now I want to listen to it. Well, uh, you should, and our listeners should too. But they should also listen to us. Uh, Our next Preacher episode will be about Cassidy Blood and Whiskey, which is a one-shot, a very good one-shot. But join us next week for the last Vertigais of the year as we finish off Season of Mists in Sandman. Hey, if you like our show, you should check out our website, at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes and show notes on every episode. Those are written by Sean. They are not written by me. Uh, (laughs) And they're a a lot of fun to read, so you should look into that. If you want us to read something written by you, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, at Vertiguys, via Gmail, 
vertiguys at gmail.com or on Facebook, facebook.com slash vertiguys. Yeah, if you're listening to us on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app, whatever it's called, it'd be really helpful if you could write a positive review, leave us a good rating. Yeah, that really helps people to find the show. But as always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks, everybody.